Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited for a first-time new guest on the Dispatch. Long, long overdue, and I should say on the Remnant. I keep saying on the Dispatch, and that's just incorrect. (laughs) Um... Uh, my relatively new colleague, she's actually been, been here for a little while now, uh, but it doesn't feel like it to me because COVID has scrambled all of my understandings of, of, of AI and whatnot. Um, Corey Shockey, that is the correct pronunciation, is it not? Yes, it is. Okay. You are the head of foreign, I think the technical title is head of foreign policy stuff and microwave ovens. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at the American Enterprise Institute, um, and you were on the National Security Council. You have like many fancy degrees with small letters that come after them. Um, welcome to the remnant. Thank you so much, my friend. It's a real privilege. So um, I am, um, you know, I was I was looking over your bio, and you know, there was stuff about like. Oh, a book you wrote called America versus the West. Can the liberal world order be preserved uh, from 2018? Um, How's that going? (laughs) It's actually going pretty well. Um, And it's counterintuitive to think so. But what we are seeing are enormous challenges posed by uh, China and Russia trying to destroy the order. So the challenges are enormous, but what's so heartening is not just governments in free societies, but civil society is activated and defending it. And I don't think we should lack confidence that we have the strength and the ability to defend the liberal order. The question was always, You know, the one that Frank Fukuyama raises at the end of his book, The End of History and the Last Man, which is, would boredom on the part of people in free societies make us too uh, degenerate to defend our freedoms? And that was very clearly Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping's bet. 
and we are proving them wrong, both in the extraordinary heroism of the people of Ukraine and the flowing of support by governments of free societies and by people in free societies to assist them against Russian aggression. So I'm one of the few people left who will still defend uh, Fukuyama's thesis as actually written. Absolutely. Um, I hate it when people say history's continuing because it's willful ignorance of what he was trying to say. Yeah, and, and, and in fairness, I think in actually willful ignorance of what he actually said, right? I mean, like yeah. sometimes like sometimes when Alan Greenspan would try to say something, you're like, <laughs> okay, that's deliberately open to misinterpretation. But that wasn't the case with Fukuyama. Um but so just to do some level setting, obviously we're going to circle back on Ukraine. When I spend most of my time talking about domestic stuff, right? And uh, there's a whole bunch of people who have very few, very little constituency in, in America, but a large megaphone and sort of social media and whatnot who say that liberalism is over, that, that liberalism needs to die, that we need to enter a new post-liberal order. And what they mean by liberalism is sort of, you know, a big chunk of what I consider just sort of normal conservatism, limited government, free markets, free society, uh, the rights of the individual, rule of law. What does the liberal order mean in terms of foreign policy? Okay, I love that question because I think you're exactly right that if people like me were doing my job well enough, um, my mom would understand this. Uh, and you're absolutely right. If you think about AEI's um, motivating principles, defending human dignity, expanding economic opportunity, and making the world a freer and safer place, that is also an outstanding description of the liberal international order, right? It, every dominant power in history has tried to reshape the international order to be a macrocosm of its domestic political order. And the U.S. is no different. Out of the ashes of World War II, the, the men who had had to fight two wars in the space of their lifetimes wanted to build an international order that was more stable, that was more self-preserving, uh, and that gave states that didn't have the force of arms or dominant economies the ability to help craft the rules and therefore a responsibility to help defend them. That's what's made the American order so cost-effective for Americans because we're not the only people trying to preserve it. And that's what you've seen in Ukraine, which is that an international order that believes that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments for agreed purposes, not only maximizes human dignity and economic opportunity, but it genuinely makes the world a freer and safer place. So uh, it's not so much that I disagree with that is that I have, uh, I have philosophical baggage on some of this that I, I might as well air with you. Um, um, I'm in favor of the, liberal international order if by liberal international order we mean basically what you were saying you know um um uh, you know the westphalian nation state system but with extra national institutions to adjudicate 
you know, uh, differences that don't leave, that don't revolve around Maxim guns or whatever. Right. But part of my problem with the way I'm not saying this is about you, uh, but part of my problem with the way foreign policy types of a certain stripe, um, talk about the liberal international order is I kind of feel like they are, um, they're stealing a base or they're question begging a little bit insofar as in the, in the domestic realm, we can have liberalism because of what Max Weber called the state's monopoly on violence, right? There is a government that we, as a, I mean, with very few Tim McVeigh kind of exceptions, we all agree is authentic and legitimate and has the right to police the public order, to protect the sovereignty of the individual, to protect um, property rights and the rule of law, and that um, we would not tolerate it if Mexico, Mexico or Burkina Faso, Faso or Canada or anybody came in across our borders and said, no, we're going we're gonna to uphold our laws on your territory rather than you. That's not, there, there's no analogous structure on the international stage, right? I mean, the, the UN, love it or hate it, I'm probably more on the hate it side than, than you are, but like, um, it's not, it's not an international crime fighting organization. It has, you know, how many, as, 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 as Stalin said of the Pope, how many divisions does the UN have? And so when people talk about, sometimes when people talk about the liberal international order as uh, the macrocosm of the domestic liberal order, they kind of leave that part out of it. So how should I think about that? You're thinking about it exactly right, Jonah. There okay, is no... over. <laughs> there is no... Um, there's no equivalent of the monopoly on violence. That's why most often interstate, interstate disputes get resolved by force. And, but what the liberal order tried to do in the aftermath of 1945 was develop a consensus on the rules, right? That borders only get changed by consent, they don't get changed by force. That's one of the big rules, and that's what's being contested by Russia and by China, and that we and our allies and friends are trying to say, no, that rule really matters, and we will band together and defend it. So there's no equivalent to a domestic police force. But I would also point out that most of our domestic peace is also a function of consensus on what the agreed rules are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's no enforcement mechanism internationally other than states being willing to say, we won't stand for this because it endangers us. Yeah. I mean, so this was always part of my problem of the early stages of the Biden administration's handling of the Ukraine thing, where they kept sitting down with Russia without Ukraine at the table which was, I mean, I did not foresee Putin doing what he's done, but even so, um, it felt like we'd already made a big concession to Putin because Putin's worldview is that great powers get to talk to other great powers and decide the fate of lesser powers without the lesser powers having a vote. Um, what did you think about the early days of how the Biden administration handled all of this stuff? So I think the Biden administration made four big mistakes early, one of which you already identified, 
which is we shouldn't show up without our friends and especially the people being threatened, right? Because we're their spokesman. What the Biden administration said in their defense is we are not going to trade away Ukraine's sovereignty, but if the Russians want to talk to us, we're willing to talk in order to prevent war. And, you know, that's a defensible position. I don't agree with it. I think we would have strengthened um, our hand and the Ukrainians' hand had we showed up together. Uh, the second mistake I think they made was repeatedly, as recently as in the President's State of the Union address, repeatedly telling the Russians they run no risk of bumping into American troops in Ukraine. And that doesn't mean I think the United States should have troops on the ground fighting to defend Ukraine, although I think that's a debatable point and we may end up there eventually. But the point is telling your adversary what it is you won't do not only facilitates their understanding of the battle space, which you always want to complicate in wars and in brinksmanship, but it also projects just how risk averse we are, that we're more afraid of stumbling into a war with Russia than Russia is afraid of stumbling into us when they invade Ukraine. And so I think that's the second mistake, projecting our risk aversion. The third is closing our embassy. I really think that America's diplomats deserve more credit than rushing them out of harm's way. And it would have been better for us and better for Ukraine if the president of the United States had said, American diplomats very often um, do their jobs bravely in danger in war zones. Um, and they should continue to do their job. We'll take volunteers among our diplomats to stay. And the fourth is taking American advisors out of the OSCE mission in Luhansk and Donetsk, the eastern parts of Russia. Because again, what it told the Russians is, we're so afraid you might take us as hostages if you actually invade this country. Um, and I think that kind of messaging actually matters. That said, the Biden administration did a ton right. Um, and really, I was fearful after the debacle of Afghanistan that they would make more big mistakes. And I think they've done brilliantly on the diplomacy, on organizing international condemnation, on the sanctions, on flowing arms fast to the people of Ukraine. They've done a lot that's right. So we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, midday. Earlier this morning, um, the story broke that the Biden administration was going to sort of unilaterally do a, um, a freeze on importing Russian oil. I have not had a chance to read up too much on it. Um, it does sound like like the political games they played with the Ways and Means Committee to make it so that like Congress uh, couldn't beat the White House to it was a, was a bad idea, but we don't need to get too deep in the weeds on that because by the time this airs, we'll know more about all that. But my understanding on, the, on just on the oil sanction stuff is, and I'm totally open to correction, is that it's kind of meaningless unless you get other countries to go along as well because oil is a fungible commodity. We don't buy the 200,000 barrels a day or whatever the number is. That doesn't mean it doesn't get sold. It just gets sold to somebody else. So what, what, what does that look like and what should it look like? 
So it is clearly true that as a global commodity, the U.S. not buying it just means it will be displaced elsewhere. So you're exactly right that we do actually need other countries to come in for it to be economically successful. The other thing is there are different grades and weights of oil and refineries are optimized to particular ones. The United States refineries are optimized to Russian and Venezuelan weight and grade, like the dirtier, heavier. Um, so it may have a marginal effect even if we do it by ourselves. It will certainly have a major signaling effect. Um, it looks to me like our European Union allies are, have, are committing to reduce their imports of Russian energy by 80% this year, which if true would be an enormous uh, blow to Russia's ability to raise money internationally. So I think it's a work in progress. It looks to me like the Biden administration was trying to stall until they had broader international buy-in. Uh, but as you say, they didn't want Congress to force them to do this. So, and, th and this is just purely factual question. Um, I get why NATO can't go into Poland. I get very frustrated with people who talk about, you know, my, my running joke, and I'm repeating myself, but my, my running joke about the no-fly zone stuff is like michael scott in the tv show the office declaring bankruptcy there are a lot of people that are just think i you know michael scott just goes i declare bankruptcy and he thinks like that makes he's filed all his paperwork or whatever just declaring a no-fly zone is a meaningless thing you might as well just say i declare it a no war zone right and but you know bless americans hearts that there's so in favor of doing this because i think that what they hear is no fly zone means let's do something short of going to war and that's the right instinct and you know and all that so but uh i it is a funny thing how the i've i've newfound respect for the people who criticize the me the mainstream media for like egging on like the iraq war um because i see journalists of all political persuasions constantly asking politicians sort of like with asking Joe Manchin, okay, it's now 258. Are you in favor of getting rid of the filibuster, right? They're like, okay, well, it's it's now Wednesday. So have you changed your position on a no-fly zone as if like it's just a matter of political positioning when in fact what a no-fly zone is... What An act of war. Yeah, straight up act of no war, right? Is. So yes. I, I get that that people who understand what's entailing and entailed in a no-fly zone should be deeply reluctant about a no-fly zone. What is just, and this is the factual question, what are the rules that, say, let's say Poland decided, screw it, we're going in, let's fight. We're not doing it under, we're not doing it under the auspices of NATO. You know, we've, United States has gone to lots of wars and many wars without it being a NATO thing. You know, Poland can go to do what it wants to do without it being a NATO thing. Does that trigger any NATO rules or is it just, is, is is Poland free to do something like that? And do you think it should? Poland is absolutely free to do something like that. And if this war goes on much longer and the Russians continue to target hospitals and apartment buildings, uh, there's going to be growing pressure, not just in Poland, but as you suggest, in the United States, right? It's true nobody understands what a no-fly zone is. 
But what they do understand is Ukrainian civilians are being subject to artillery barrages by Russia, and they want it to stop. And they want us to do something useful to help the people of Ukraine, and they want us to do more than we're doing, which is a beautiful sentiment. And I love my country for it. And I love the other countries of the free world for running risks of their own. Two things, I think. Um, so technically, what triggers an Article 5 defense, an attack on one is an attack on all, is for one of the NATO countries to be attacked, to be subject to aggression themselves and to ask for the NATO allies to consider defending them. Technically, all Article 5 requires of us is to meet and discuss what's happening. But we have all always interpreted that as an attack on one would be an attack on all, because that language is also in the treaty. Um, and there are lots of ways, short of a no-fly zone, that Western countries can either choose to become involved in the war or get dragged in. And let me just give you a couple. Uh, one is, um, you know, we and everybody else are shipping arms to Ukraine and we hand them over at border checkpoints before too much longer. If Russia continues to lose this war, they're going to start targeting those weapons shipments. And those are legitimate military targets in a war. So attacking Polish-Ukrainian uh, border checkpoints. Um, the Poles could very well invoke an Article 5 defense over that. Um, a second possibility, uh, you know, this is going to look like the Spanish Civil War. You already have volunteers flowing in. President Zelensky said more than 16,000 American volunteers. I've seen... American um, volunteers? Excuse me, 16,000 international volunteers, okay. that would be a story. <laughs> of whom um, about 4,000 are Americans. Is that right? Like like fighting Americans? Yeah, That's people volunteering and flowing in the country. I didn't realize there was country. anything like that number. Um, again, uh, they're being vetted. It's not clear. But the Ukrainians are already filling in international volunteers into Ukrainian units. Um, and so if those combatants become prisoners of war and the Russians um, and the Russians try and make spectacles of them, that will enrage Western publics. Or insurgents fleeing into the safe zone of Polish territory and the Russians either targeting or chasing them in hot pursuit. So I can think of a dozen ways that as this goes on, you know, people, societies tend not to narrow and compromise their war aims in a war. They tend to become more committed to what they're fighting for and less restrained um, by the finer uh, norms of civilization as a war goes on. I hadn't really thought, been, you're absolutely right, obviously, but like I hadn't really thought about the Ho Chi Minh Trail of Eastern Europe scenarios um of which there are obviously going to be, i mean like you just think about all the countries that border ukraine it is you know it, it never mind the coast and all of that you know you could see all sorts of crazy scenarios materializing so what is your theory of the case about why and how 
or if, you know, feel free to disagree with the premise, Putin miscalculated all of this as much as he has. Yeah, I think it's the conventional wisdom about authoritarian governments that they become more and more disconnected from information. Putin's been in power 20 years. Um, he's uh, incredibly ruthless. Uh, and so I think what's happened is that he started drinking his own bathwater, right? Because he thinks Ukraine is part of Russia, that therefore Ukraine is part of Russia. Right. And no one and, would disagree with him, right? That's exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. who's going to put themselves on the line? You saw in that crazy national security meeting that he had in the run-up to the war, the way lots of people looked uncomfortable, but nobody was flipping their stars onto the table to say, hey, boss, I think this is a terrible idea, and you're wrong about 37 things. And the other you know, uh, quintessential problem that autocracies have is corruption because they don't have a free press, they don't have vibrant civil society, they don't have all the checks and balances on corruption that free societies have. And I think some of the problems we are seeing in the Russian military uh, are problems of corruption that nobody was held accountable for. Yeah, it's funny, just as a, as, as a pure happenstance, I'm about, I don't know if you have listened to the Mike Duncan Revolutions podcasts, but uh, yeah, it's great. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm caught up to like, I think it's episode 79 of the Russian Revolution. <laughs> and uh, they were just doing the stuff about the Russian Civil War and the degree to which the white Russian army blew all these opportunities to, to beat out, you know, to chase out the Bolsheviks because of just endless corruption and an inability to frame a ideologically compelling and desirable alternative to the boat. All they were like, we're going to restore the czars and you're going to be serfs again. And we're also <laughs> going to rape and pillage all your villages. And so it's like, eh, all right, that's I'm the peasant uprising you were counting on is not going to happen. And, um, but the interesting thing to me, or one of the interesting things to me is, I don't know if you saw this, we did a good piece on a the dispatch. There've been some other places. There was this accidental post of this essay of major intellectuals in Russia that uh, it was, it was supposed to go up like two days after the very quick surgical victory. When the victory. war was won. The right. war was won. And it basically treats this NATO argument as a triviality and says this was all about restoring the historic, poetic, romantic nature of mother, greater Russia. And Ukraine is once again back in the fold of her mother. And we are going to expand the empire and all these things. And um, so it, it, I, I, that ideological component to this is one that I think gets really short shrift in part because it's sort of like a Herman Kahn thinking the unthinkable, you know, we, uh, we work on these, uh, these sort of assumptions that everybody's a rational actor and, um, um, and you can be a rational actor to an irrational idea. Um, but it seems to me like, so I, I guess first question is how much of that ideological, how deep is that ideological vision? Right? Is it just Putin's and the people he surrounded himself with? And or like, how much merit do you think, or how much depth is there to this argument that NATO 
was the provocative, you know, uh, force here and that, but for NATO's expansion, none of this would be happening. Those are great questions. I honestly don't know the answer to the first one. You know, one of the difficulties with autocracies is it's really hard to tell the depth of support a leader has, right? It's like, it's like Hemingway's description of bankruptcy. Slowly, then all of a sudden, things change. And it's hard to say whether people are just self-serving or fearful for their families or, you know, the typical range of motives. And so I don't honestly know. I think we are going to understand the depths of support for Putin based on whether he gets overthrown. And we won't understand it until we look retrospectively at how it happened. On your second question about NATO expansion, you know, I was uh, a NATO desk officer in Colin Powell's joint staff at the end of the Cold War. And uh, I was originally very skeptical about NATO expansion because I worried we weren't actually going to commit the ability to defend these countries and that that was leaving them vulnerable. And I also thought in 1991 that if we could create a relationship with a post-Cold War Russia, that, that that was the best way to make Eastern Europe safe. The problem with that theory is Russia very quickly proved it wrong. Uh, and so we kept trying to persuade the Russians that you will grow secure and prosperous if you are surrounded by countries that are secure and prosperous. And the Russian government kept rejecting that perspective, that they feel safe when they are surrounded by failed states that they can keep unstable and keep impoverished and subservient. And that's why countries are kept rushing towards the door of NATO, even if our ability to defend them, the Baltic states, for example, having a high degree of difficulty of preventing um, conquest, even if you are committed to reversing it. Uh, so everybody's rushing for the door. And by the way, if Ukraine manages to sustain its sovereignty, not only are Sweden and Finland going to come into NATO, Ukraine's going to come into NATO, Georgia's going to come into NATO, Moldova's going to come into NATO, because Vladimir Putin's Russia has just demonstrated there is no safety unless you are inside the NATO framework. And so do you think all those countries should come into NATO? Yes, I do. I really do. I think that um, if we allow Russia to determine the terms of sovereignty of other countries, that that encourages the kind of behavior we see Russia carrying out right now. And, and it's not going to be without risks to us. It's, it's going to further worsen our relationships with Russia. But guess what? Look at what Russia's doing in Ukraine. And unless you think that's okay, we need to help countries willing to fight for their own freedom to be safe. But that doesn't mean that, I mean, let's put it this way. Would you have been in favor of Ukraine joining NATO 
in March of 2020, given its cur then current state of economic, democratic, uh, anti-corruption progress? Um, do you think all that stuff, but you know, there, there's certain membership requirements that come with exactly. NATO. Exactly. Um, and Ukraine hadn't met them. Yeah. But the courage of Ukrainians and what they have suffered, they're going to get a pass. And we're all going to help them rebuild their cities so that they look like German cities, uh, the Ukrainian equivalent of wealthy German cities. Um, and we are going to give them all the help they need to create transparent, democratic institutions. Ukrainians were moving that direction. You know, if you look at the progress of the leaders of Ukraine over the last 20 years, they're getting better and better. Um, but, but no, I wouldn't have favored it in the spring of 2020 because I didn't think that they had yet met the membership requirements of a stable democracy, of transparency in their justice systems and other things that we established. But we also weren't giving them as much help as we might have given them. And as I think we are, are and should give Ukraine and everybody else in the aftermath of Russia's attacks. Um, yeah, I don't want to get all Manser Olson here. But, you know, <laughs> but Manser like one of his big arguments was that the way you actually can like shed off a lot of inefficiencies and corruption is suffering a terrible defeat in a war because you just you bust all of the old artery clogged arteries of the old body politic and you can replace them with this new sense of you know we're all in it together and that's one of the things that happened with germany and japan after world war ii that would have been really really hard to do prior to world war ii um that's right but before you leave the subject of Mansur olsen i want to say uh not only is he a brilliant economist but Every alliance expert knows Mansur Olson because he's the guy who introduced the concept of free riders. That, of course, countries that are protected won't do as much for their defense as countries that aren't protected. So everybody in NATO quotes Mansur Olson all the time. Well, I mean, so, since you brought up free riders, um, again, because there's no script here, I'm just coming up with things to ask you about, you know, uh, which, you know, I would do over drinks the same questions basically there probably more gossip but we're not going to do that <laughs> here um uh for a long time I mean, i've always been pro nato but i've also been pro nato reform i've also been in favor and written a lot about uh you know uh, the, the need for a league of democracies that had higher standards than simply existence which is the standards for the un but um a, there's a long-standing argument that has cranky versions and respectable versions to it that the problem with NATO over the particularly over the last since the Cold War but you know really over the last 40 years is that basically America has has basically subsidized European welfare states and created these calcified economies by comparison to the United States that um, do not generate the kind of robust sense of national pride and um and dynamism that you would get if you didn't have those welfare states and if you actually let some of these countries have have more skin in the game as it were about protecting themselves is 
I've always had some sympathy for that argument, even though like depends on who's making it. Cause some people just want to get rid of NATO and I don't want to do that. But like, it drives me crazy in these arguments right now, how the Trumpists pretend, I think, cause they honestly don't know that otherwise that, you know, Trump was not the first person to ask European countries <laughs> to spend more on military for their NATO commitments. I, I think literally every American literally. administration for 50 years, something like that easily it goes all the way back to nato's foundation you are it's exactly right so and i i too am sympathetic to the argument right every time i get on a train in germany i think wow if we didn't spend so much money on protecting ourselves and our allies maybe we could have public transport systems like this and i get surly about it um and you're right that the underfunding of defense is longstanding, um, and uh, and I gnash my teeth about it. Dwight Eisenhower gnashed his teeth about it, right? Like he testified when when he testified before Congress about originally deploying U.S. troops for to Europe after the invasion of South Korea. He argued this was going to be a temporary thing until European countries could rebuild their economies after the devastation of World War II, and then the United States could go home. But it's also true that in the eight years of his presidency, he made no effort to reduce U.S. troops in Europe because he saw that their presence was stabilizing in all sorts of positive ways, including that it's a lot less expensive to maintain a stable positive outcome than to have to claw your way back and reestablish it. And that's why you still have US troops in Europe. One thing that changes your, I'm sorry, two, two other quick points. The first is that Europeans would have had those economies and would have had those cultural attitudes, even if you didn't have NATO. Right, because that's the post-war European project through the EU and beyond it. Um, so they just would have been even less well defended. It, I genuinely doubt they would have spent more on their defense without NATO. I think what you would have seen is much more capitulation to Russia and other aggression. And the last thing I say is that, you know, when Europeans get scared, Defense spending goes up. You saw it after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014. That's when defense budgets actually started going up. And you saw it most extravagantly in the last 10 days. I mean, Germany is nearly tripling its defense budget this year because they're scared. And so, you know, we should take it as a tribute to the safety we created for ourselves and our friends that is now much more tenuous, but not because of our behavior, because of Russia's. So I, 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 I'm in favor of the German rearmament stuff to a certain extent, but there is, you know, there is this finding in the historical literature that, that German rearmament sometimes can go badly. <laughs> um, and I can't remember, you probably remember, it was at was it Atchison or Marshall? It was one of those guys who said the problem with the Germans is they're always at your feet or at your throat. Churchill, yeah. Was it Churchill? Oh, okay. Uh -huh. I thought it was one of our guys. Um, 
um, like, again, I, I, I think the corrective is important and valuable and good, and I'm entirely in favor of it. But uh, my understanding is that when uh, Schultz, the German chancellor, chancellor um, right. announced all this, this massive change in policy, he didn't once mention the United States of America or Joe Biden in this entire speech. It was all about Europe and Germany and all these various principles of the international order, but like America was invisible in that telling. Do you have any sort of second order concerns that this is part of the sort of uh, the sort of shouldering out of uh, or muscling out of America um, or could lead to it? I mean, there is a certain lead from behind thing going on with how Biden has handled this, even though I think he deserves credit for a lot of the things that he's done since the invasion. It, it There is a sense of sort of like we're standing back a lot. And do you worry, given how economically dominant Germany has become inside the EU, that if it also becomes a military power, you know, what could go wrong, right? Um, <laughs> how do you how do you assess yeah. that those kinds of risks? So I am much less worried about a broad-shouldered Germany than I am about a complacent, passive. Uh, we have strategic depth because Poland lies between us and Russia kind of Germany. I, I think a free-riding Germany, or worse yet, a neutral Germany, uh, is a much worse outcome than a well-armed, assertive Germany standing in line with the United States and its allies. I do not see any evidence that Germany or other European countries want to push the United States out of the picture. Um, you know, they're scared and they want to hold hands with us because uh, not only are we the biggest dog in the fight, but we fight by the rules and that matters to their own populations a lot. I think the lack of mention of the United States in Schultz's speech has two, um, two motivations. One is actually the long shadow of the Trump administration, right? The questions about American reliability that Trump's behavior raised and that Europeans are really nervous he could get reelected in 2024 and what that would say about the United States and our willingness and potential to be a partner to them. So I think that's one motivation. He was trying to make clear Germany needs to do this. Um, it doesn't need to do this because the United States is making it. Uh, it just needs to do this. And the second thing is that, you know, we are looking at the Germany of our own creation. Right? Uh, we wanted a Germany that whose first port of resort was multilateralism, who was scared to do anything by itself. So a lot of what Germany was saying was reassuring other Europeans that they don't have to be afraid of a strong Germany. And that's not something the United States, you know, we're much less captive to that narrative. You know, if you think back to the Eisenhower administration during the Berlin crisis in 1958, where, you know, Khrushchev threatens we're going to go to war over this, 
Eisenhower wasn't worried about going to war with the Soviet Union. He was worried that Germany would choose neutrality. And I think that's always been the right second order concern. We need a Germany voluntarily adherent to the West. And we have that. And that's why I'm not worried about them rearming. Yeah. I mean, you do get the weird historical thing about how you know, there are a million jokes along these lines about um, how you know someone's a German if they describe themselves as a European. <laughs> um, which, That's right. I, which I, I, I'll take, right? I mean, given the alternatives in German history, you know, it's fine. Um, I, I just a couple of quick, I, last little bit on on Ukraine and Russia stuff, and then I, I want to switch gears a little bit. But um, what what if you had to predict? And obviously, predictions come with all the usual caveats. But how do you see this playing out over the next ten to thirty days? Forget. 10 years, because I think in 10 years, we all agree this will not look good for Putin, but 10 to 30 days or the, in, the, in the next year, you know, does Putin win this on paper and then things unravel? Yeah. What, what do you think? No, I don't think he does win this even on paper. I mean, what the Russians proposed in the peace negotiations with the Ukrainians yesterday was Russia's initial war aims. Right, uh, the recognition that Crimea is Russian, the cession, uh, the ceding of Donbas and Luhansk, the agreement for Ukraine not to ever join NATO or the EU, and Ukrainians aren't going to agree to that. Those are terms of surrender, not terms of, uh, not terms of negotiation. Zelensky couldn't stay in power, in my judgment, if he agreed to those things, popular as he is, because um, Ukrainians are furious at what Russia has unleashed on them. The second reason I don't think Russia gets a win is because I don't think Russia's military can take it. Um, you know, they're, they are transporting troops in civilian open back trucks now, just as 17,000 stingers flow into the country from the West. So the Russian military thought it was going to unleash shock and awe like the United States can. And what they proved is they can be fought to a draw by the Ukrainians. Uh, so I, I think Russia is likely to escalate rather than to accept defeat and they will continue to escalate as long as Putin remains in power. I could, I, I hate to say it because I don't want it to be true, but I could see Putin's Russia crossing the nuclear threshold, either to destroy a Ukrainian city and try and force capitulation or to try and force us to abandon Ukraine. Or I could see them if they, if they lose by enough, fast enough, destroying Ukraine on the way out the door. Um, so that's what's making me think we in the West are going to be drawn more into this because I don't think we can or should tolerate those outcomes. So what... Uh, also, I'm sorry, one more thing yeah. on the 10 to 30 day timeline. The performance of the United States intelligence community in the last five months has been genuinely extraordinary. 
And we seem to know what's going on in Russia's highest political councils. We seem to know what's going on in their military planning. And so we would probably also have advance warning if Russia was planning to do any of those things. And I could see the United States and other allied countries believing that intelligence, given how good our intelligence has been so far, and acting to prevent Russia having the ability to do those things. Yeah, I mean, it would be really important to have that nailed down when you have to explain it later, but I, I agree. But but let's let's assume that we don't preempt it. Uh, not not the leveling of Ukraine on the way out the door, um, which I could totally see happening, but let's say they use a battlefield nuke, right? A, a tactical nuke and, and take out a major Ukrainian city or launch it above a city to do an EMP thing, whatever, a demonstration effect thing to terrorize Ukraine. What What is your best guess about what American and NATO and European responses to using a nuclear weapon in Europe. I mean, like, like the idea of doing that must be so otherworldly to the, the sort of normal sort of cookie pusher. Let's have a conference in a nice hotel in, in Zurich types. Um, like it calls to mind, you know, Tom Wolf used to say, you know, the Europeans are always worry, always warning about the, the dark, curtain of fascism you know in america and it always seems to descend on europe <laughs> i worry about a europe that frightened and panicked about and understandably so but like what like according to our doctrine do we have a different response if it's a battlefield if they use a nuke versus just conventional destruction uh so the Biden administration is midstream on writing a nuclear posture review which should describe American doctrine. And before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration was considering a whole host of alternatives to further rein in the circumstances in which the United States would use our nuclear weapons. And deterrence coming back into fashion, I think those, they're probably likelier to just leave it alone. There is no... Uh, actual doctrinal solution to when you use nuclear weapons in a military conflict. Typically, uh, the answer is only if you're losing. Right. Because you would need to get political agreement from the NATO countries if we were involved in a war alongside our allies. And you would need to persuade my mom of it if, you, if it were just the United States. So the political taboo of crossing the nuclear threshold, I think, would make it profoundly unlikely that the United States or the NATO allies would agree to it, even if Russia did, because we are going to want to maintain the moral high ground. But I do think it, if Russia did that, it would put Russia so far beyond the pale that you would likely see the United States and NATO allies commit to the fight on Ukraine's side, rush uh, nuclear and biological um, um, you know, aid to them. That is, help them uh, make people safe, decontaminate the area, everything possible that we can do. And that's going to mean a huge inflow 
of American military and other um, NATO militaries into Ukraine. And we probably won't send them without defending them. So, so I think for all intents and purposes, if Russia were to do that horrible act, that it would mean the rest of us go to war against Russia and probably try and limit it to the liberation of Ukraine. But I do think we would be in that fight if Russia did it. Yeah, and it sort of gets back to your original point, which I think is a really good one about how, why does Russia get to be the one that's ambiguous about being scary and not the United States of America? There are all sorts of legitimate complaints and criticisms about the Iraq war. We don't need to relitigate them, but there was a real advantage to having this idea that you could piss off America so much it would send a massive army halfway around the world to defend its prerogatives or its principles or whatever, or just, just to mess stuff up. And I'm not saying that's a justification for it, but it's a benefit. I think that the, the Trump defenders get a lot of history wrong and certainly get Trump wrong, but this notion of just being unpredictable does have advantages and why we can't, I mean, look, my position on Donald Trump's foreign policy is pretty, no, no, that's not where I was going. I was going to say, actually, the predictability that the United States will defend its allies and its interests, I think, matters more. No, that, that's were... a good point. That's a good point. I'm just saying that they should be scared of crossing our tripwires yes, more than we exactly. should be scared of crossing theirs. Exactly right. Yeah. We are an actually good first-rate military, and we have a public willing to use military force to defend our country, our interests, our allies. Uh, you know, the joke before the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that there are more Americans willing to defend Germany than there are Germans willing to defend Germany. Um, and it was, you know, polling literally bore that out before you saw this big sea change as Germans got very scared that their safe Europe could be crumbling. Um, all right, since we, since we brought up nuclear stuff and we're almost out of time, though, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. Um, you gotten some criticism from various quarters on the right for not being as anti the original JCPOA, Iran deal, all that stuff, um, as some people would like. Uh, happy to have you just sort of lay out your position. But also, what the hell is going on with this new Biden-Iran <laughs> deal? Because it does seem like... like First of all, given the context of the what's going on in Iran, this idea that we I mean, in Ukraine, the idea that we are isolating Russia while they are basically our intermediary in negotiations just strikes me as just creepy and weird. Um, yes. N- never mind yes. the stuff coming out about what what Mali and these guys are giving away in these negotiations. So what was your old position? What's your current position? What do you think is going to happen? So I reluctantly supported the JCPOA because I did not believe either the Bush, Obama, or Trump, or Biden administrations were actually going to carry out their policy, which is to preemptively attack Iran and destroy its nuclear weapons infrastructure. And I don't think the Iranians believed it. I don't think our allies in the region believed it. Um, and therefore locking down the Iranian nuclear program to the extent that it did 
and providing the intelligence benefits of understanding more about Iran's nuclear infrastructure made it on balance worth accepting the bad deal, provided that you also pushed ahead on the other egregious Iranian behaviors of domestic human rights violations, destabilizing regional governments, interdicting shipping in the Straits of Hormuz. And what we saw was after the JCPOA went into effect, not only did the Obama administration not follow up and push back on those things, but they were more indulgent and the Trump administration even more indulgent. We permitted attacks on the UAE and Saudi Arabia that we didn't respond to. And I think those things dramatically encouraged uh, Iranian risk tolerance. Um, I don't think you can get the nuclear agreement back for reasons that have nothing to do with the United States. I think um, the Abraham Accords, which are an enormous success of the Trump administration, have made regional states more confident that they can work together and contain Iran. So they are less anxious than they were at the time um, that we were negotiating the JCPOA, more confident they can handle it. Second thing is they're less confident we're going to intervene. You know, they see continuity between the Trump and Biden administrations of not caring about the problems of the Middle East. Um, and so they are more resolved to take care of it themselves. Third, the Iranians have pushed ahead with reprocessing that I don't see any signs they're willing to reverse. And fourth, one of the perhaps not properly evaluated consequences of the JCPOA was it facilitated the surge to power of the most anti-Western elements internal to Iran. So I think the leadership of Iran doesn't want a deal. And the people who made the JCPOA have been pushed to the margins because they couldn't deliver the economic benefits they said it was going to produce. So I think, oh, and lastly, because we're actually much more concerned about other problems now than we were concerned about Iran uh, eight or nine years ago. Um. Okay, and last question. I've been making this argument for a while, and I've heard interesting, but I think ultimately unpersuasive rebuttals. But the that you know, you, there's this this talking point, which I think is largely driven by exasperation on certain quarters of the right that they have to actually concede that Biden's doing some good things. They have to concede that. Trump was wrong about his man crush on Putin. They have to concede that they were wrong about their understanding of Russia and geopolitics. And so there's this safe harbor for a lot of people to say, you know, this is all a distraction. The real enemy is China. We shouldn't take our eye off the ball. And my response to that is, look, if you really want to send a signal to China that um, uh, the West is strong, uh, do something about Ukraine. If you want to send a signal that the consequences of invading Taiwan are enormous, like the price you'd have to pay, make the price for Putin invading Ukraine as high as conceivably possible. And, um, you know, the responses to this 
I mean, there's some interesting responses. Some of them are, people will say, well, yeah, but except now Xi knows how to fix his economy, fix currencies, you know, blah, 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 that'll make him immune to the kind of sanctions that Russia is seeing. That's an interesting point. We can deal with that, right? But like this idea that, um, you know, there was someone from the American conservative who said, you know, that, you know, my take sounds authoritative, but is exactly wrong. He was like, uh, the way you actually send a positive signal is by knowing your limits and not getting distracted by things and all of this. And I just find that completely unpersuasive. So where, where, where do you come down on this and where, what lessons do you think China is actually taking from this right now? And what lessons do we want them to take? Yeah, so I come down exactly where you are, which is if the United States is unwilling to preserve stability and peace in Europe, I don't see why anybody in any other part of the world would believe that we cared enough to preserve stability and protect others, right? So uh, everybody knows the United States is tied most tightly to Europe of any part of the world. And if we're not willing to run risks and keep Europe stable, I don't see why anybody would believe it anywhere else. So that's, that's fundamentally where I come down on it. Um, second of all, uh, there, uh, the people who argue, some of whom are in my very own foreign and defense policy team here at the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute, that we have limited abilities and we need to acknowledge the limits of our abilities. Um, uh, I, I think reassuring the Chinese that we have fixed limits that we're never going to break out of, again, encourages their reckless behavior. We, it's, it's not a law of nature that the United States only spends what we spend on defense and only has the forces that we have, right? These are policy choices. It's not the law of gravity. And I think what we're likely to see is American defense spending to shoot way up and expand America's ability to do more than one thing at once. Uh, and we're long overdue to do that. We have been underfunding American national security strategy for three administrations, and it's time to bring the two sides of the equation into balance. What do I think the Chinese are going to learn from this? First, the longer a war goes on, the, the more the United States has the ability to organize and orchestrate activity by a lot of countries. Second, don't let the United States know what you're doing. Because if they do, they can get out ahead. Um, third, make stuff happen fast. Uh, and fourth, you better bulletproof your economy before you commit major acts of aggression. But the thing is, I don't think the Chinese can. You know, the, Russia actually has an easier time because uh, oil's a fungible commodity, as you said before, and everybody needs it. Uh, you know, the Chinese have a lot more ways that we can hurt them uh, by forcing them out of the American economy. And Congress, to its great credit, has demonstrated that what a superpower it is for the United States, because they get up on their hind legs and start demanding that we do stuff. 
So do you think on all seriousness, I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, I have other guests for rank punditry on here, but uh, <laughs> you think the Democrats have it in them to sizably uh, plus up our defense budget? You are right to be skeptical since the Biden administration's first budget raised spending in 16 federal government departments and agencies. The only one it did not raise was the Department of Defense. Um, but yes, I think they will look ridiculous if they don't dramatically increase defense spending. And not just because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, American strategy has for the last six years relied on a three to five percent increase year on year in real spending, which it has not had. So we're already and that's before you get to seven and a half percent inflation and six months of a continuing resolution. Those have shrunk Defense Department's actual buying power to do what it needs to do really dramatically. And we need to fix that over and above Ukraine. But the defense of Ukraine, if, if the Biden administration doesn't submit a substantial increase in defense spending, Congress is going to do it for them. Congress did it for them last year on a bipartisan basis, raised defense spending $27 billion. And I think it'll be at least double that, uh, whether or not the Biden administration asked for it. So they'd be dumb not to ask for it because it's going to happen. Okay. Corey Shockey? What, what, what kind of name is Shockey? What is that? <laughs> you know, when I was uh, on the McCain campaign in 2008, John didn't want us squandering valuable time talking to foreign journalists unless they had troops fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I got rolled out to talk to a Dutch TV crew. And they were so excited that John's national security advisor was Dutch. <laughs> and this came as an enormous surprise to the Shockey tribe. But evidently our surname means the board game chess in Dutch. And for oh. somebody who does what I do for a living, that is now too good to check. I'm just flat out claiming it. I, I highly recommend you not check the comment section of this podcast because somebody <laughs> is going to answer this question dispositively. I promise you that. So just ignorance is bliss. Um, thank you, Jonah, for giving me the fun of this conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, so Corey Shockey has left the studio. Um, it was great to finally have her on. I feel very guilty that it's taken this long. Um, if I could figure out a way to blame Guy, I would, but I can't. Um, maybe I'll have him work on that and come up with some scenarios. Uh, thanks a bunch for listening. I have not figured out what I'm going to do about the solo ruminant remnant this week because I am getting on the road for a few days, but uh, there will be something um, and it will smell like lavender. Uh, so with that, uh, thanks so much for listening and uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.